Well, before we begin this morning, <clears throat> just want to put forth before you that our flocks are meeting tonight. Uh, we are meeting tonight to discuss application to the message this morning. What a great way to take that and apply that meeting at the Weebies and the Landmans. Uh, also, I put out my weekly word and opportunity for international students to host them or Thanksgiving to be a uh, light there. If you're interested in that, you can talk to me. This morning, we begin our exposition of the book of Second Peter. And um, I, I think really the best way to begin is by experiencing this letter in the same way that the original hearers first heard it. When Peter wrote this letter, he gave it to a messenger. Uh, we don't know who it was. Maybe it was Salvanus. And delivered it to these churches. And when it was delivered to the churches, it was read in these churches. They didn't know about it before, but it was just read for them publicly. And uh, that's what I want to do. I want to read the book publicly. But rather than reading, I want to quote it from memory. Uh, over the past several months, I have spent time memorizing this. probably been over the last year or so. As I was in First Peter, I thought that, you know what, maybe if I memorize Second Peter, I can bring in some application from, from that book and help. And so I just got it in my mind. And uh, so it's there. And uh, before I quote it, though, I want you to think about the three major chapters, divisions. Uh, in chapter 1, Peter's going to talk about our salvation, how secure it is. He's going to talk about um, this, the, the way we can trust the Scriptures, our salvation of Scriptures. And they're just sure. Chapter 2, he's going to talk about false teachers. He's going to talk about how bad they are. And then in chapter 3, he's going to talk about the coming judgment of God. How it's coming. And it will be bad. So as uh, Peter wrote, could be delivered even as a sermon. He wrote, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these qualities is, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make his calling and election sure. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. 
Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place and until the day dawns and the morning star rise in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, (laughs) even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, But preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong, as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. These are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, 
having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are, are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. By sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has been from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that, that by the Word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. In a thousand years, like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up, since all these things will be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which <laughs> are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now 
and to the day of eternity. Amen. And that's how the first readers would have heard this book. They knew it had come with, from Peter, and with good reason. We call this the second letter of Peter. In chapter 3, verse 1, Peter explains, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. It means there was a first letter, and the first letter is First Peter. Apparently, these were written to the same group of people because he says in chapter 3, you are receiving the same letter. So you go back to 1 Peter and you find there that the, the uh, first letter that Peter wrote was written to the, the scattered believers throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are, are regions in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we know that Salvanus brought this letter to them, maybe spent some time with them, maybe came back, reported to Peter what was taking place, and Peter wrote down and described these things for them, wrote this letter to them, the same people. But although they are written to the same people, the letters are different. I mean, the difference between 1 Peter and 2 Peter is vast. First of all, there's a difference in purpose. Peter had written his first letter to Christians. Why did he write 1 Peter? Because they were suffering. And his message to them was, listen, you're suffering now, but what's later? Glory is later. And so endure your sufferings. Bear with your sufferings because the, the inheritance you have later is grand and glorious. Suffer now, glory later. They're being persecuted from those outside the church. But his second letter is being written because there's persecution difficulty coming from within the church. There are false teachers arising who are leading many astray. And Peter gave them counsel to deal with it. And he told them, listen, you've got to know the truth and grow in godliness. Know the truth and grow in godliness was his message in his second epistle. Another reason why these letters are different, they're different in substance. I mean, First Peter spoke nothing about false teachers, but Second Peter is all about false teachers. All of chapter 2 contains nothing but a description of these false teachers. And what he writes in chapter 1 about our salvation being secure in Christ in the Scriptures, and what he writes in chapter 3 about the coming, the return of Christ... Those are all written because of false teaching. The style of Second Peter is, is vastly different. His first letter, Peter quotes Old Testament Scripture a lot. In the second letter, very rarely. In his first letter, Peter has a wide range of application given to servants and, and wives and husbands and citizens. In Second Peter, there's no particular direct application to a particular group of people. In 1 Peter, only little is mentioned about Peter's own life and experience. He mentions that he's an apostle at the beginning. He mentions at the end that he's a fellow elder. But in 2 Peter, much is talked about his personal experience. And first of all, he writes this letter because he's about to die. This is the last will and testament almost. This is the last advice given to people before he's going to die. We ought to take heed to that. Oftentimes, the things that people say last are the things that we ought to take heed to. It's like the most important thing. He's about to die. And he mentions that in chapter 1, verse 14. He mentions his own experience in the Mount of Transfiguration when when he went up on that holy mountain and saw Jesus in olive complexion that all of a sudden began to change white and his skin was so white that it bled through his clothes. He just shone and what it was, his deity was shining forth and shining true. And Peter says, I saw that. This is what I have been involved with when I see that. He mentions how he knows Paul. And now he's read his letters, and <laughs> thankfully, even Peter has found some of letter, Paul's letters difficult to understand. 
And as a result of the differences of these letters, there's difference in vocabulary. And have caused, because of these differences, it's caused many scholars to doubt whether Peter actually wrote Second Peter. Now, I don't think now's the time or the place to talk about this. One commentary I read put out 11 reasons why people doubt Peter wrote this letter and then showed why you can believe that you can believe the letter. I just say this. I believe Peter wrote the letter. We're going to go on that assumption. I think it's a fine assumption to go with. And I believe that Peter's letter is very applicable for us today at Rock Valley Bible Church. The message of 1st 2nd Peter can be summarized by these two words, know and grow, know and grow, know and grow. What's the theme of 2nd Peter? Know and grow. Peter's going to tell us in the epistle how it is we need to know Jesus, we need to know God, we need to know about salvation, we need to know the truth, all these things. We need to, we need to know this. And in knowing it, we need to cling on to it and hold fast to it and be firm in it and steadfast and not be carried away by those who try to pull you away. But Peter didn't just stop there. Peter said, know it and grow in it. The salvation that Jesus gives is wonderful and everything that we know about that is great, but it's not an academic exercise. Rather, it should change your life. You should be growing in your faith. You should be growing in your knowledge of Him. You should be diligent to see that all this happens. And, you know, this is my prayer for Rock Valley Bible Church. This is going to be my prayer over the next several months as we study this second epistle of Peter is that we would know and grow. In fact, even before we get actually into the text to open it up to you a little bit, I just want to pray this morning that God's hand would be upon us, that He would cause us to know and grow. Let's pray. Lord, we start this morning, Second Peter, and I think of the messages ahead, probably a dozen, maybe 15 messages here on Second Peter. I, I pray, God, that you would use his words in our hearts to give us a more of a secure foundation in the salvation we have. We'd see how secure it is. And we'd realize that your word is true, backed by the experience of Peter, backed by the the promise of the Old Testament has come true and that You are the One who we need to know. And I pray that You would reveal Yourself to us as we are to know You, even as that was Paul, what Paul said, is that I may know Him. God, that is the cry of our hearts. And so I pray that You would show Yourself to us. We cannot know You unless You show Yourself to us. And we plead that You would. As Moses said, show us Your glory. As we say, show us Yourself. And Lord, I would pray for Rock Valley Bible Church that we would go beyond just a mere knowledge, that, that we would grow in You too. That You would give us a zeal for You and a passion for You, a, a heart that wants to grow in our relationships with people, relationships with our family, relationship with the lost so we can share the Gospel with them. God, but that we would be those who would be diligent to be found by You spotless and blameless in the last day. And we pursue hard following after the things that You've given us to do. So I pray in these months that Rock Valley Bible Church should all be about that. Knowing the truth and growing in godliness. I pray You'd help us in that. We need Your help. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my outline is that. Know the truth grow in godliness. Know the truth, grow in godliness. 
First point this morning, know the truth. Over and over and over again in this letter, Peter's going to talk about our knowledge of the truth, our knowledge of Christ, our knowledge of God, and how important it is to our spiritual growth. Look there in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter says this, I want grace to be multiplied to you. Not just added to you, multiplied, exponentially growing. I want peace to be multiplied to you. Not added to you, but multiplied, exponentially growing. How? How does it? How, how does Peter say that God's grace and peace abound in our life? Through the knowledge of God. In the knowledge of God. Listen, I guarantee you, if you know little about God, your life will live little for God. And if you know much about God, you have opportunity to live much and greater for God. That's how it is. For there will be much peace and much grace in your life. It comes through the avenue of the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is the key to growing in grace and peace. In the next verse, verse 3. We again see the knowledge of God mentioning. He says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, we've got to stop there. First, this is... This is like a massive promise. I can't wait to get to this verse next week. That, that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Not He will give it to us. He has given it to, it, to us. But how is it that He's given it to us? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. It comes from the knowledge of Him that we get and obtain everything that we need for life and godliness. You can't have everything you need for life and godliness apart from knowing God. It just doesn't work this way. The knowledge of God is the road to a godly life. Because your thinking affects your living and your knowledge of God affects your godliness. Next verse, we see it again. Emphasis upon knowledge. He says, Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and your moral excellence knowledge. He says, You take all diligence in your faith and supply all these things. One of the things that we need to be really diligent about as believers in Christ is our knowledge of Him. That's what it says there. How do you do that? How about Bible reading? How about prayer? How about sermon listening? How about book reading? How about intaking, MP3 listening to sermons and uh, books and messages and Bible just getting in your mind so you know about it. We need to be diligent in pursuing our knowledge of God. One thing interesting about the Christian life, Christian walk, however, is that our learning is often not something new. Our learning is often the same old things we need to hear over and over again. That's what Peter says about what he's going to tell these people. Verse 12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. You already know them. You've already been established in the truth but I'm going to remind you of these things. In fact, even in verse 13, Peter says, this is the right thing for me to do. As long as I'm living, as long as I have breath, I need to remind you of what you know. So really, our, our growth in the knowledge of God is more like a, a man's growth in the knowledge of his wife. Is it, do I know my wife? Certainly I know my wife, but every day, in every way, I learn more and more and more, but still, it's Yvonne I'm knowing. And so also with God. We know God. We've been established in that truth. But we just need to press on to know more and more and more of Him. Know Him more intimately. Right? So why do we gather at church every week? 
Why do we come to church every week? To learn something new? Well, yes and no. Fundamentally, we come to church to be reminded of the things that we already know. When Paul went to Corinth to preach the Gospel, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance, he says, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He rose again according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to many people. That's the first thing He said. As you read through, Cor- for, through Corinthians, you find out that that's the only thing He said. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, 1 Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It was the one message that Paul stayed true to. It's the one message that we need to stay true to. It's the one message that you need to be reminded of week after week after week. Christ and Him crucified. It is the challenge of the preacher. I've got one message. I've got one message to tell you. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, it's not that that's the only words I say. Because obviously Peter is saying new and different words, but all that it is is he's got Christ and him crucified and just addressing him from different areas, showing where Christ and him crucified is not applied correctly in the case of the false teachers, showing how Christ and him crucified is, is all set there on the Mount of Transfiguration, showing that he's the glory of Christ, how even Christ coming the, the first time shows he's going to come a second time, and all those things all gets back to the cross of Christ. Different angles. All the same thing, we need to remind it. We need to remind it that we're sinners and that the way we come to God is not by our righteousness. We come because we have hope of forgiveness in the cross, that we are justified sinners. Simultaneously, we're justified and yet still sinners. It's not our righteous behavior that makes us righteous before Him, it's not our good deeds. Good deeds cannot make up for a wrong done. To make up for a wrong done, you can have a sacrifice of another, and that was Christ. You don't merit your standing before God for righteous behavior. I don't care how much Bible reading you do. I don't care how many Bible verses you memorize. That's not the path to God. I don't care how many ladies you've helped in distress. You cannot improve upon the sacrifice of Christ. So believe in Him. I'm reminding you again today. Believe upon Christ. That's what you need to know. And that's Peter's burden. To remind you. In fact, we even see it there. Look at the very first verse. He's writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Now, what's this faith he's received? Here it is. The righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Our faith is in the righteousness of another. Our faith is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That though we're sinful, yet God looks down upon us through the cross of Christ and sees us by faith as holy and pure and blameless in Him. And Peter is reminding them of that. And Peter knows full well there are many who doubt this message, people who don't believe it, don't think it's true, think that this story about Jesus upon the cross is just an old story that's made up. I mean, this is, this is like Aesop's fables. I mean, this might as well be you know, a rooster and a fox talking with each other. But verse 16, Peter says, No, 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 listen. This is true. This is factual. This is historical. We did not follow cleverly devised tales. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he proceeds to tell about this time we went up to the mountain. And, and, and Peter, if he was here, he would tell us, you know, I went up there with Jesus and James and John. I didn't know why we were walking up the mountain. As we were walking up, we were getting winded and up there. And finally, Jesus sits us down and starts to talk to us. And all of a sudden, something strange starts happening to his face. He starts changing before us. 
I've never seen anything like that happen before, but, but he was changing. He's white and it's glowing through. And we saw Moses and Elijah and they were talking about the cross. They were talking about his departure. And, and it was just a glorious thing and, and it was so overwhelming. I fell asleep and I woke up and just Jesus was there. And Jesus said, it's true, don't talk with anybody about what you've seen and heard. Because he wanted to make sure he was crucified and then we could talk. I'm talking to you about it now. That this is secure. I'm telling you what took place in history. I'm telling you what my own eyes saw. I'm telling you what my own eyes hear about this voice that came from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. We need to listen to Jesus. This isn't a, a cleverly devised tale that somebody made up. This is firm and secure. I want to remind you of that. It's firm and secure, your faith. And He says the prophetic word, verse 19, is more sure it's not a whim of someone's interpretation. It's God who moved men to write the Scriptures. Then it's God's interpretation that we ought to be pursuing after. Pay attention to Scriptures. And so I ask you, do you know the truth? Do you know the truth about your salvation? Are you saved? Have you trusted Christ? Are you firm in your knowledge? That's what we need to be, firm in our knowledge. Well, chapter 2 talks about a discussion of false teachers. And again, I'm showing you how knowledge comes right through here again. Verse 1 is a good summary of these false teachers. He says false prophets arose. Talking about the Old Testament. But he says also false teachers will also come among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Even, catch this, denying the Master who bought them. False teachers are going to rise. They're going to lead people astray from the truth. And they're going to be sneaky about it. As they come in, they're not, they're not going to stand forth publicly and deny Jesus. I mean, this is within the church. They need to look orthodox. Okay, They need to look like they're Christians. And that's where false teachers come. False teachers don't come in the demonic temples. False teachers come in the Christian church in the name of Christ. But what do they do? They secretly introduce destructive heresies. They, they go behind the scenes. They subtly talk about them. Talk about just a little bit today and then a little bit more. And then, then they infiltrate people and and write it in books and have it distribute all throughout there. But they're not going to talk about it in public, but so corrupt will be their teaching that eventually they're going to deny Christ. They take Christianity and stand it on its head and say, Jesus is not, not, not Jesus. And that can be done in a myriad of ways, but that's what these people do. And they don't take only a few after them. He says many, verse 2, will follow their sensuality. You have a false teacher who lives a life of sensuality and wanton pleasure, this is the way to God, you'll find many people signing up for that religion. Certainly I will follow them. And they'll do much harm to the church. Verse 2 continues, because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. <clears throat> we know what this is about. When any time big name preacher falls into immorality, what does that do for the church? The reputation of the church is, is smashed. It's hurt. It's harmed. Well, here's a big leader and he fell in immorality. Yeah, they're all hypocrites. As many follow them, the way of truth will be maligned. So these false teachers do. It's in the name of Christ that they're going that way. And throughout the entire chapter, Peter speaks about these teachers using very graphic, picturesque language. He calls them unreasoning animals in verse 12. You might call them brutes. Just, just carried along by their own lusts and desires. They are stains and blemishes, verse 13. They're like the, the blotch in your garment that you can't get off. Ugly disdainful. They are springs without water, mist driven by a storm. The, the, the springs which should provide water, they don't provide water. And, and the, the, the mists 
They should give water, the clouds, but they're just driven away by the storm. These people are empty. They are, verse 19, slaves of corruption. Finally, in verse 22, this is the most picturesque of all. He calls them dogs and hogs. He says they're just like the dog who returns his own vomit. The dog is sick in his stomach and he throws up. He's better. And then what does he do? He goes back and he licks up and eats his own vomit. That's what these teachers are doing. They purge themselves in some sense to get in the church and then they're going right back into all that stuff. They're like a, a sow who, after washing, right, you take this pig and you take him in your home and you clean him all up and you say, here, you put him back in his pen. First thing he goes out and he does a barrel roll. It's mud all over himself. That's what these false teachers are. They're wicked, corrupt people. Here's what's interesting. As Peter describes these false teachers, he gives no command in the entire chapter. You look in vain for anything about what to do with these false teachers. or No command. The implication, though, is clear. You need to know what a false teacher looks like and you need to know what a true teacher looks like. Right? Know the truth. Right, discern what they're saying, discern their lies as well. Be firm in your own knowledge of God so you're not carried away by these types of people. Because their doom is sure. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says that their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Oh, it may look like they're going and carrying on okay now, but listen, they're not. And then he gives examples in verses 4 through 9 of chapter 2 about different people. God destroyed these angels. He destroyed the ancient world. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but he rescued Noah and he rescued Lot. And he certainly can rescue righteous people and he certainly will condemn the unrighteous to the pit of darkness. As verse 9 says, he's able to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 12 says these people will be destroyed. Verse 17 says the black darkness from them has been reserved. So the implication is this. Don't join with them. Hold on to the truth and know the truth. At beginning in chapter 3, we see the same thing about knowing the truth. In chapter 1, is about know your salvation, how secure it is in the Scriptures. And then chapter 2, about knowing just, just what you believe about Christ, what, what's true in God so you're not carried away by these false teachers. And then again in chapter 3, we have again, know that the judgment is coming. Know it. Because if you know that's coming, you're going to live differently. Peter begins, now the second letter I'm writing to, in which, what is he doing? He's stirring you up by way of reminder. You know about these things, but I'm just telling you again. And I will always do that. Think about the words spoken beforehand by the prophets. These are the Old Testament Scriptures that were written beforehand. Think about what, what Jesus spoke. Think about what the apostles said. I'm just telling you the same thing that they said. First thing, <clears throat> in the last days, mockers are going to come. And what do they mock about? They mock about the creation of God. They mock about... You believe that God created the world in six days. <laughs> How foolish is that? The world evolved. And see, it was long ago, we believe in uniformitarianism, right? How it is is how it was and how it shall be forever. It's going to be like that. And that, by the way, is in churches. It is in almost every Christian school in the land. Peter says this. They, they mock then the promise of His coming in Jesus. Peter says, verse 5, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God the heavens existed long ago. God spoke it into existence. Don't you know that? So he said... Through which the world at that time, through, he spoke the world into existence, spoke the water and the land, and the water then destroyed the world back then. 
And he's coming again. He's going to destroy the world again. He says, don't you know that God created the heavens and the earth? Don't you know that the, the earth was destroyed once by the flood? It's no accident that evolutionists will try to deny the worldwide flood because the worldwide flood is a symbol that God has destroyed the earth once and He's going to destroy it again a second time. But not with water the second time, but with fire. We'll get into some of that. I'm looking forward to chapter 3 and talking about creationism. But you know, it is, is something interesting that there's lots of things I can't explain. How do you explain fossils on the top of mountains? The only way a fossil comes is by a, a wave of pressure and massive mud coming on top of it. It had to have been underwater at some point. And the flood came, it was underwater, and then it rose up. The, the, the testimony for a universal flood is vast, but many deny it. That's how it is. But it's interesting that, that these people miss that God created the world, He destroyed the world, and that He will destroy the world. And they deny the future coming of Christ because they don't know about the past, because they say everything continues just as it has been from the beginning of creation. And Peter says, no, you need to know that's wrong. Their problem is they don't know the past. Peter says, you know the past is going to have an implication upon how you live in the future. The only reason that God is delaying His return right now is because of His patience, waiting for repentance to come. The kindness of God leads people to repentance. That's what it is. But Peter tells us to make sure that we know the truth because when the day of the Lord comes and the, the world is destroyed, we'll give an account to God. And, as it says in verse 11, since all these things will be destroyed, it's going to change the way we live. In verse 14, since you look for these things, right? Since you look for the coming of, of God, be diligent to find by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. It's going to change the way we live. But finally, this last stream of knowledge comes here in verse 17 of chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing what beforehand? Knowing that God is going to come and judge the world, destroy the world. And knowing that there's a new heavens and a new earth coming, which we ought to look forward to. Knowing that that is coming. Be on your guard. So you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Don't follow after those false teachers, but know what's true and what's coming. So know the truth. Peter's message throughout this thing, know the truth. But Peter doesn't seem to really say know the truth. He has another message that comes along with this one. It's my second point this morning. Grow in godliness. In other words, he says, grow in your love for the Savior. Right? Grow in your character. In fact, even we can see that right there in verse 18. There's the word. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As much as Peter exhorted his, his, uh, his readers to know the Savior, he also instructs them to grow in Him. And, and we see this, this theme of growth throughout the whole epistle. You see it here in chapter 3. And, and, and what we've done is we've gone through 1 Peter 1-3. through 3. Now we're going to go through 1 Peter back 3-2-1. Okay? I think that's the best way to take it. Peter's been talking about the judgment of God here in chapter 3. All won't be continuing on. God's going to come back to destroy the earth and knowing about the future ought to change your life today. Chapter 3, verse 11, we touched on a little bit. I want to dig into it deeper. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, since, since the heavens are going to be destroyed in this way, since the earth is going to be destroyed in this way, how ought you to live? 
You ought to live holy lives. You ought to have godly conduct. That's what verse 11 says. In fact, even I like it there, holy conduct and godliness. We need to grow in our godliness. Your knowledge of the future ought to change the way you live today. And I'm just telling you, the more you know the second coming, the more you're convinced of the second coming, the more you will live a life of holy conduct and godliness. Now, oftentimes people get interested in prophecy and all they are are just interested in prophecy. They're just interested in learning more and more about that. But anytime prophecy is ever mentioned in Scripture, there are always ethical exhortations attached to it. Those who are engaged most in prophecy ought to be the most holy people around because they know that God is coming. And that's what Peter says. Since these things are destroyed this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Verse 14. Since you look for these things, you better be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. He's calling us to a diligence. Verse 14. We need to be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Right? And a diligence speaks about a growing. It speaks about a pursuing. It speaks about a following. We need to follow hard after God, as Psalm 63, verse 8 says. We need to pursue Him. We need to grow in Him. And in fact, it's interesting, this is the fundamental problem with the false teachers, is they didn't grow in Him. That was the fundamental problem. If you, if you look at chapter 2, you think about it, here's a whole chapter devoted to false teachers. Do you realize that only in one verse did Paul mention what actually they were teaching? Is this strange? A whole chapter, 22 verses, talking all about false teachers, and he mentions their teaching once. And when he mentions what they were teaching once, it's just generalities. It's there in chapter 2, verse 1. Look what he says about their teaching. They introduce destructive heresies, and they deny the Master. That's all. Just, they introduce teaching which is destructive, and they deny Jesus. That's all he talks about about these false teachers. But he goes on then to describe in chapter 2 about their wickedness. He addresses their lives. He shows how bad they are. You say, why is it? Why does Peter attack their lives? It's really quite simple because what you believe affects the way you live. If you live wrong, your beliefs are wrong. Okay? So he's attacking their life. Chapter 2 looks at their wickedness. In fact, it would be helpful for us to see their wickedness. Verse 2, many follow their sensuality. They are sensual, fleshly people. They're into the flesh, things of the flesh, things they can have, materialism, whatever can satisfy them, entertainment, whatever they can get, that's what they are into. Verse 3, we see them being identified as greedy. Money is their God. They're into money. They're into the flesh. They're into the, the, the... gratifying the flesh. They're into money. That's who these people are. And then after this respite from verses 4 to 9, talking about how God's going to judge them, then we see in verse 10 about what they are. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. Despise authority. They engage fully in their sins. That's who these people are. They despise authority. When a rebuke comes to them, they deny the rebuke. No, that's not true. They despise Who are you to have authority over me? And they go off and do their own way. They're renegade people. They're daring. They're always on the edge spiritually. They're self-willed. They're doing whatever it is that they want. They don't tremble when they revile angelic majesties. And we might think about that as, well, what's that talking about? Let's talk about rebuking Satan. Talked about in Jude how even the Michael, the archangel, didn't argue with Satan and the demons. Michael, the archangel! 
He didn't argue, but these people will gladly argue with the demonic world. Boldly stand up against it and try to rebuke. And Peter says, if you knew the demonic world and its power, you wouldn't do that. Even angels don't revile angelic majesties. But these, these are unreasoning animals. They are, they are brutes. They just go on. No conscious about themselves. They revile angelic majesties. Verse 13, they do wrong. Verse 13, they, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Paul said, I think it was 2 Thessalonians 3, or 1, 5, 1, whatever, 1 Thessalonians. He wrote to the Thessalonians, and he said something about how those who do their wickedness do it in darkness. Have you ever noticed why the pubs are filled at night? Because there's a cloud of darkness over that. You ever noticed that most murders and most shootings happen at night? Why? Because there's a cloud of darkness. You can hide your wickedness. You can hide your sin. You ever noticed in a nightclub how it's always dark? It's because that's how you can hide with your sin. Nobody, nobody sins in the daylight except these false teachers. They revel in their sins in broad daylight for all to see. Such is their wickedness. In verse 14, we see it compounding again and again. They have eyes full of adultery. They have not made a covenant with their eyes as Job did. To not look lustfully at a woman. They lust whatever they want. They have a heart trained in greed. Verse 14 says, They are well practiced in their deceptive devices. They entice the unstable souls, entice the weakest of people. Verse 15, he compares, he's like Balaam of old. He gladly prophesied when he got a paycheck. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. They were preachers who for hire would gladly Tickle the ears for a few silver coins. Verse 18 continues. How they speak arrogantly. They're proud people. They're enticed by fleshly desires. Right? They use the lust to gain a following. Right? Modern advertisement does that. They pander to your lusts and your desires and your heart. And that's what these preachers did. That's what some do today. By sensuality, they entice those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They, they, they go after the weakest, the people. They are, verse 19, slaves of corruption. They are, verse 20, entangled in the defilements of the world. Sin is so entangled in that they are slaves of sin. They're trapped in their sin. So think about this. Peter tells an entire chapter detailing the wickedness of these false teachers. And he doesn't go after their teaching. He goes after their lives. So what does it teach us? It teaches us of the primacy of our lives. The false teachers erred and they failed. They failed to grow in godliness. Instead, they've gone the opposite direction. They pursued sin rather than pursuing God. See, because knowledge isn't enough. It's not just know. It's know and grow. Look at verse 20. These false teachers have escaped the defilements of the world. They're like the Pharisees of old. They have at one point been involved in the pollutions of the world, the defilements of the world, and they've escaped it by knowing something about Jesus. But then what happens? Because they didn't grow in that knowledge, but shrank in that knowledge, they went back this way, and Peter says that their last state has become worse than first. It would have been better for them just to stay in their sin than to have known the way of righteousness and then gone after that way. Much better for them just because he says they're more accountable now. They're more culpable now. And their fundamental problem is they didn't grow in godliness. They are like the, the plant that Jesus told about the sower, sower and the sow, right? Soil and the sower. 
sows out the seeds, right? Some were hard, they didn't go there. But some grew up. Those upon the rocky soil and those upon the, the um, shallow soil, they started to grow up. But what happened? The things of this world persuaded them. The things of the world pulled them away. They started growing, but they never bore fruit. But they started growing and then eventually they withered away. And that's these people. They never bore fruit. They started to grow, but then went away, went astray. They got enough to grow to be in the Christian church, to be identified as a teacher, but then they went astray because of their life. And, and would the truth be known, this is the failure of all false teachers. They fail first in their lives and their teaching follows. Normally there's a sin they're trying to cover up. It's not that they come to the Bible and say, oh, homosexuality is permitted. Hey, this is, this is okay. No, it's they're engaged in the sin and they come to the Bible and justify their sin. And that's what they have done here, even to the point of denying the Master. It's a path that false teachers take. It's a path that all take. They want their sin, and so they'll create a doctrine to cover it up. Much of that's behind some evolutionary theology as well. There's this sin they want to cover up. No accountability before God. And uh, so they cover it up with evolution. It's always been just how it's been. I mean, God puts His testimony in our hearts. You've got to suppress that because they want to do their wickedness. But that's Romans 1 for another day. So, do you want to protect yourself from heading down the path of false teachers? Grow in godliness. As you grow in godliness, there is no reason that you will have to twist the Scriptures to your own desires. The Scriptures aren't our own interpretation anyway. It's what Peter says in chapter 1 right there at the end. A scripture is not a matter of your own, one in, own interpretation. I think he's alluding there that these false teachers say, well, that's your interpretation. This is my interpretation. How many people you heard? Oh, well, that's your interpretation of it. Have you ever heard people say that? Do you know why they say that? They say that because they want to justify their sin. But if you're growing in godliness, that will not be a problem for any scripture. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and you know of His atonement, how you are washed clean, you can come to any portion of Scripture with a clear heart and a clear conscience. But if you have unconfessed sin, you're not believing, you will come to Scriptures and say, that can't be right. That's your interpretation. You start attacking. That's the way all false teachers go. That's what Peter's saying here. Know their lives. And you also grow. Your growth will protect you from false teachers. So grow in godliness. Finally, we're getting back here to chapter 1. I want to show you how much Peter talks about how we need to grow in godliness. And it, it comes several times here. But verse 5, talking about our salvation, talking about how secure it is, talking about how we have everything for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us. He says in verse 5, Now for that reason, because of our security, because of the, this firmness of our salvation, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And he's got seven traits like this. He says, in your knowledge, self-control. And your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. Your godliness, brotherly kindness. Your brotherly kindness, love. These seven different character traits. He says, pursue them. Go after them. It's interesting. I think he's just saying, grow in godliness. He says you ought to apply all diligence in this. 1 Timothy 4.7 Paul told Timothy, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And here he's making all diligence to pursue his godliness, what he's saying. Again in verse 8, look what it says. If these qualities, right, these seven qualities, if these are yours 
And if they are increasing, how are they going to be increasing but that you are growing in that? If these are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in... What does it say there? In the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Catch this. As you pursue godliness, that leads you to be fruitful in what? In knowledge of God. And as you know more about God and apply that and then grow in your godliness, what does that help you with? Your knowledge of God. And as you know more about God and you grow in that, it's just around and around and around and around. That's how it works. So you know more about God and you apply it in godliness, that helps you in your knowledge. And then you know more about God and you grow in godliness. And you grow going, and it just it just keeps spiraling up and up and up and up and it keeps going around. That's why the know and grow are just right here. In verse eight, these growing qualities of yours, they're increasing. Then they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. The, they render you profitable and fruitful in the knowledge of Christ. So grow in godliness. If you want to grow in your knowledge of God, you grow in godliness. As you grow in your godliness, you grow in your knowledge of God. As you grow in your knowledge of God, you grow in your godliness. So grow. That's what Peter's telling us here. And then look at verse 10. He says this. Therefore, brethren, again, be all the more diligent. How many times has he said that? He says in verse 5, applying all diligence. He says in verse 8, if these are yours and are increasing. And then he says in verse 10, apply all diligence. You, you, you get the picture? He's saying, exert yourself, apply yourself in these areas. And he says this, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Make certain that He's called you and make certain that He has elected you. This is a reference, the foundation of the world. He's called us. He's chosen us in Christ. And you can be sure of His election of you. How? By growing in Christ. Growing in godliness. That's how you make sure of His election. It's right there in verse 10. So you want to make sure you're one of the elect? Pursue these things. Pursue moral excellence. Pursue knowledge. Pursue self-control. Pursue perseverance. Pursue godliness. Pursue brotherly kindness. Pursue love. As you practice these things, you can be sure God has called you. Your increasing godliness is a sign that you're one of the elect because those whom God chooses, He changes. And those whom He changes grow in their godliness. Let me ask you, do you think growing in godliness is important? You say, yeah, I think so. Good, Nathan. Thank you for your... Yes, I think it's, I think it's good. Let me show you how important it is that we grow in our godliness. Verse 11 in this way, you say, in what way? Being diligent to practice these things. Being diligent so that you won't stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. It's how you enter the kingdom. Steve, are you advocating works righteousness? I'm not. If you listen to my message, I'm not advocating works righteousness. However, You need to see that we enter the kingdom as redeemed sinners who are growing in our grace and knowledge of Christ. That's the true gospel, people. It's to to know Christ and to to grow in Him. And that's our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. There are many people on that day who say, Lord, Lord, should I enter the kingdom? Look at all these things I've done. And Jesus said, those are religious works. You never knew me. And He didn't do my will. So He said, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's not that these, these things of our character save us. Next week, we're going to see, you're going to see that our righteousness is not of our own. 
the righteousness of all of Jesus. But when God saves us, He sanctifies us. And He purifies us. And we know that we're saved looking upon the way that God has changed us in our life. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians 2.13 God has chosen us. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. That's how He saves us. He changes us. He molds us. Our sanctification is the path of entering His kingdom. So, Rock Valley Bible Church, I just say this, know the truth and grow in godliness and trust that we will see these things grow more and more and more. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, You know my heart that we would be a church body who would would know Christ and know Him deeply. We would pursue after Him and follow after Him uh, hard. I love the Psalm 63, verse 8. Follow hard after God. I pray You'd help us enable that. We can't do that on our own. There's so many enticing things in this world. And God, You're the one that needs to, to help us. I pray you'd reveal yourself to us as I prayed in the beginning. I pray we would have a heart and a passion to pursue you and that we would see genuine growth come about with each other and we'd encourage one another on towards grace and godliness and life. So I pray that you'd you'd be among us, help us in these days. We plead the power of Christ in us. Pray for next week. I, I pray even now for a message. I'm excited to speak forth about how our righteousness in Christ, our salvation is secure. Everything we need to grow in godliness, we already have. We don't need to get anything else. We have it all in Christ. And I pray that we would realize that and grow in that and pursue things of godliness. Help us, Sabati, for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, just flocks tonight. If you want to take this message, see how you can apply it to your life. Really work that through with some people. Application of the word is right there. Other than that, you're dismissed. Have a great Lord's Day. Kids, come on up here.